Today's reading is from uh, Revelation 2, uh, 21, 1 through 8, and 22 to 27. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As you are aware by now, we're having a number of baptisms this morning, and so it's an exciting morning. And with a service like this, uh, we often have a, a little bit of a shorter sermon uh, since there's so many things going on. And so with that in mind, I decided for some reason uh, it would be great to jump into the book of Revelation. <laughs> I, I know some of you are thinking uh, one does not simply jump into the book of Revelation. But let's give it a shot. For some of us, uh, Revelation is intimidating um, or it's confusing. Some of us have had really bad experiences because of the way Revelation has been interpreted. And I have a friend uh, who grew up in northern Canada, like way up north. And the only way to access the settlement that she lived in was by float plane uh, or in the winter the lake that they were next to would freeze over and they'd make an ice highway and trucks would deliver stuff over the ice highway. Uh, and uh, the reason she grew up in such a remote location in northern Canada was that her dad had moved her whole family up there to the most re remote place that they could get to, to learn survival, to homestead, and to prepare for the end of the world. And that was based on a particular reading of Revelation. And I bring this up because uh, 
what your vision of what the future will be is going to determine how you live right now. If you don't think that there's going to be anything, that's going to impact how you live now. If you have a particular idea of like floating on clouds and singing in choirs, like, that's going to impact how you live now. Um, and so we're going to look at Revelation uh, as, uh, as a way to um, look at what will be. And Revelation, though it does deal with what to come, uh, it's actually just simply a retelling of the gospel. So the good news about Jesus. And that, uh, and you know, we're most familiar with that good news as it's presented in like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels. Um, but we're looking at this story from like a cosmic perspective. It's like the camera angle has lifted up to about 20,000 feet. The veil that separates the spiritual and the physical has been lifted, it's pulled back, and we get to see that the story that we're in is so much bigger than we ever imagined. And in some ways, it becomes sensory overload. So Revelation is, it's a high context book of the Bible. And the author of Revelation assumes that we are all very familiar with the Old Testament and particularly the book of Isaiah. But because the book of Revelation is such a high-context book, uh, I'm going to make uh, a few statements about Revelation as we go along that I'm just not going to have time to fully unpack. But if you do have questions, um, I'd love to talk about it after. Um, we can go for coffee or, or, or something. But with all that in mind, um, let me pray, and then we're just going to dive in. Our Father, uh, we... we come before you. Um, we look to you. We look to Jesus. Um, we want to see Jesus more clearly. And uh, as we look into your word this morning, we ask that your Holy Spirit would um, reveal um, something of ourselves um, and something of what our hope is um, in, in the world to come. Um, so we ask that you guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been, been going through a, a series on the book of Genesis over the past uh, few weeks. It's the first book of the Bible. And we're breaking from that series, and we're looking at the second to last chapter of the last book of the Bible, Revelation. And somewhere in the middle of it all, between the beginning and the end, we find our gospel reading. Jesus, after he has died and has been resurrected and before he ascends into heaven with the promise that he will return at the end of the age, he charges his followers to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what we'll be doing in a few minutes uh, is part of the fulfillment of that charge. We're going to be baptizing disciples. And now the baptism service liturgy goes into detail on, on many things that baptism signifies. Death to sin, being raised to new life in Jesus, union with Christ, being adopted into the covenant community of disciples. There's lots of things, which again, if uh, those words don't make any sense to you, oh, we'd love to talk with you and, uh, and explain, help explain some of those things. But everyone here, who's been baptized, especially, is, is playing a part in this service this morning. We're welcoming these people into the fellowship of believers. You all have a part of this service, too. 
And baptism is also joining us into the grand story of the purpose of creation. That's what I want to focus on. What are we, what we are called to do as we respond to Jesus' invitation to follow him? And one of the ways in which we gain clarity, clarity about what we do right now as followers of Jesus is to look at what end. Look at the goal that we're moving towards and what things will be like when Jesus returns, ushering in the new heavens and the new earth. One of the great hopes that emerges throughout the story of the Bible is for a restored creation with everything properly related, God to humanity, humans with each other, and humanity to the rest of creation. It's a world of flourishing. The central connection point of all of that is Jesus. And we experience bits of that restoration now, and we look forward to experiencing it fully in the future. But how does our gathering here, this community of followers of Jesus, reflect this great hope that we have? So as we look at Revelation 21, and particularly we're going to focus in on the last five verses of that reading, I want to highlight three things that give us a vision of what the new creation will be like and what that implies for us living as a community of believers right now. So I'm gonna be focusing on what is the main focus of God's people gathered together? Um, what or who's all included in that? What's excluded from that? And then how do we respond? As we look at our reading in Revelation 21, you'll notice that there's a tension in the description of what's going on. Revelation is narrated by John, one of Jesus' disciples, who receives this vision, and, and we're kind of joining in right at the end of the, his long description of this experience. And important for understanding what's happening here is this scene takes place after Jesus has returned. Jesus has judged the world. He's defeated evil. He's seen to it that justice is done. Death is no more. We're looking at the future at eternal life. And Revelation uses a lot of metaphorical language and symbols and imagery to describe this. And, and partly, I think, at least in the part we're looking at, um, we're trying to envision what a world would be like free from sin and violence and decay. And none of us have actually experienced that. And then on top of that, we have like spiritual realities that are usually unseen are being described. And as this new reality is described, we find elements of continuity and discontinuity with the present creation, with the world that we live in right now. Here's what I mean. Revelation 21 starts out with a description of the present heavens and earth passing away and a new heavens and new earth emerging. It feels almost like a replacement. But then in verse 5, John records Jesus, the one sitting on the throne, saying that he's making all things new. He's not making all new things. He's making all things new. It's the language of restoration, not destruction. And then there's the language of union, of the, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to earth. Heaven and earth are being joined. And in verse 3, a voice declares that the dwelling place of God is with humanity. This is temple language, 
an imagery that we first come across in the book of Genesis uh, that it describes creation, the first creation. God dwelling with his people, people representing God to the rest of creation. And so there's a familiarity of things, but there's also a discontinuity. And the discontinuity lies in the absence of death, the absence of mourning and crying and pain and violence and immorality and deceit. Years ago, I was leading a Bible study for a group of high school football players in Brooklyn. And uh, we, we got talking about heaven and eternity and all of these sorts of things. And one of the guys stopped me and he said, wait, is there going to be football in heaven? Because if there isn't football, I don't want to be there. Uh, so we actually ended up having this, this, this really good discussion about the nature of what things will be like. And, and we actually came to the conclusion that there may not be football as we know it right now. But whatever version of football there will be, is going to be so much better than what we have now. At the very least, there will be no concussions. <laughs> and, and so, but I know, you know, I know there's some people here who are thinking, football, um, that's going to be in that other place in verse 8 that's burns with <laughs> fire and sulfur, right? But, but that, that's another debate. Um, the point is that there's going to be continuity and there's going to be discontinuity between then and now, there's actually a bit of mystery in how that's all going to look. But I want to focus in on the main thing. And for that, we jump down to verses 22 to 27. What is the main focus of the new creation? Well, there's one really important word that comes up here. It's glory. It's in verse 23, the glory of God. And so the first thing to note is that everything is centered on and illuminated by the glory of Jesus. Verse 23 says that the glory of God, God's presence is so bright and flows so freely that it illuminates everything. All of the new creation shines with God's weighty character, as one of my seminary professors would say. And that's always got to be at the core of Christian community. It's all eyes on the glory of Jesus. And that's why here uh, we say Emmanuel Anglican Church exists to see, reflect, and describe the beauty of Jesus. We want to bear witness to that reality that will be, and in a way, we get a foretaste of it right here. Because God's glorious presence is promised to us in his Holy Spirit dwelling in us and among us. But that all sounds really abstract, doesn't it? The main focus of God's people gathering together is God's glorious presence with us. Jesus pouring out his spirit on us. What does that actually look like? What are we actually to do? So if we look back at our passage, we see that in this gathering around the glorious presence of God, there's another type of glory that is present. Verses 24 through 26 talk about the glory and the honor of the nations being brought into the city of God. Now, the city, like New Jerusalem, New Heavens, these are all um, themes that are being woven together that are all throughout the book of Revelation. They're all kind of being, coming to a head here in the last bit. But what's going on? Well, the glory of the nations is different than the glory of God. The words in verse 26 are the glory and honor of the nations. 
And those two words, glory and honor, are kind of an idiomatic phrase that means something like treasure or wealth. And so the glory and the honor of the nations is something like the cultural or communal treasure that exists throughout the nations of the world. So think of things like food and literature and language and customs. And all of that treasure is brought into the new creation. The kings are like symbolic figureheads representing all the nations. And there's actually going to be this wonderful cultural diversity in the new heavens and the new earth. We'll have people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. That's what's repeated all throughout the book of Revelation. And so here's where I think uh, this says something to us presently. If that's what is going to be, and if we're a community that's seeking to bear witness to what will be when Jesus makes all things new, how do we go about living that out? Right, we're a community that is centered on Jesus, and we want to be a place where the cultural wealth, that, that treasure that comes from the nations is brought in. Yet I don't think the answer is, uh, well, let's just try to be more diverse um, or anything like that. Diversity is not a bad thing, yet diversity is not the main thing. Rather, for followers of Jesus, uh, it's actually a byproduct of following Jesus. If it comes before Jesus, uh, it becomes an idol that replaces him, and that's where problems pop up. Yet a diverse community doesn't just magically happen independent of what we do, and it gets complicated when we have people from all different backgrounds that are coming together and um, we have different understandings of things and different, different ideas of how things are done. And then something of that complexity uh, is actually seen back in Revelation 21, which uh, brings me to, uh, to one of my last points here, my last point. It's, it's that simply that while the glory and the honor of the nations, that treasure is brought into the presence of Jesus, there's a bit of a caution hidden for us in the last verse, in verse 27. It says that nothing that is unclean will enter in, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. The implication here is that there are no cultures that are pure, that are untainted by sin. The picture that we have at the end is not a free-for-all, everything-is-awesome-and-welcome moment. There's an acknowledgement that there are parts of all cultures that fall short of the glory of God and have no place before his face. Right, right at the beginning of, of this sermon, um, I made a, maybe it's a really obscure reference to a Lord of the Rings meme that's become popular in early years. I don't know, did anyone catch that? Yeah, okay. Um, when I said one does not simply jump into the book of Revelation, um, I was referencing a meme that has a quote of one of the Lord of the Rings characters. Um, he's from the movies of books. Uh, his name is Boromir. Um, and he says he, there's this phrase in the movie where there's this whole council that's gathered and they're trying to figure out what do we do with the One Ring. And he says, one does not simply walk into Mordor. Um, but do we have any Lord of the Rings fans here? Right? Okay. I, I see some heads, right? Okay. As you probably noticed, I'm a fan of Lord of the Rings. Uh, it, the, the books by J.R.R. Tolkien um, are, are one of my favorites. And our family actually has a tradition of um, we'll read books out loud together. And this past Christmas, um, 
My girls were kind of finally all at the age where I could read Lord of the Rings out loud to them. And so we read through the whole Lord of the Rings together and um, I, might, I might have um, fulfilled one of my life goals by doing that. But uh, I bring up Lord of the Rings um, because uh, in that, in that, that book, um, Jared Tolkien, uh, he did this amazing job of building up this incredibly detailed fantasy world um, with this amazing diversity of different peoples. There's elves, but there's not just one type of elves. There's wood elves and high elves and sea elves and gray elves and not just elves. There's dwarves and there's dwarves that lives in the mines of Maria and uh, in the Lonely Mountain. And then there's hobbits and all kinds of hobbits and there's wizards and then there's men. And there's there's humans from Numenor and Rohan, Rohan and Gondor. And I could go on and on, but but you get the point. Um, there's all these different groups and different cultures and they're all wrapped up in this grand quest to save Middle-earth by having to destroy a ring. And so I, I think uh, Tolkien did a good job of honoring those cultures that he made and having like all these amazing things that they're all bringing together into this fellowship. But I don't think he did a perfect job. And one of the things is that the way he wrote the novel, um, there's this sharp division between kind of the good people and tribes and cultures in the West and the not so good and even downright evil characters in the East. And, so all the good characters end up um, being, and all the West, uh, cultures end up being the fair-skinned people in the West, and the forces of evil um, are kind of characterized by dark skin and, and exoticism. And, and so even as I loved this story, uh, you know, and, and I still do love this story, I also felt this discomfort um, as to how this world is described. Because um, I really couldn't, couldn't read myself into the story in a, pop, a positive light. Um, now, now, now I, I say that to, to, to just kind of highlight how, um, you know, we, we don't always have, even though we may have good intentions, we don't always um, do things perfectly. And, and, and now I'm, I'm also aware that, that some of you in this room probably tuned me out as soon as I started talking about elves. Uh, right? And you couldn't care less about something like Lord of the Rings, right? There's probably a lot of different reasons for that. Um, it might just be personal preference or you don't like fantasy novels and stuff like that. Or, or part of it, it could be that, you know, the Lord of the Rings is just not part of your cultural background, right? Like, like there's actually absolutely no reason why you should be familiar with this story that I really love and I've been talking about, right? And, and I bring this up because I think this illustration just kind of reveals ways that we all can be unknowingly inhospitable to others that are different than us, right? We, and, and what we do is we actually miss out on like the cultural wealth of other people. We might even uh, like belittle the cultural wealth of other people. Um, so what, what, I, what I'm trying to get at is that, that we're called by Jesus to be disciples and to make disciples of the nations. And as Jesus calls each of us to himself to follow him, he's going to reveal to us the ways in which sin distorts how we see ourselves and how we see others, how we exclude others, and how we try to shape things and other people in our own image. And so I think in this, there needs to be a call for humility when it comes to being in community with people who are different than you. It's hard work. But like all of life as a Christian, that hard work is a response to God's grace. 
It's in Jesus that the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, between all peoples, is torn down and we're made one. But it's not into this blank uniformity or conformity, right? This is what, what we're following Jesus into, the, the, this, this community of all the nations. And for some of us, what this will mean is that we'll have to think and pray hard about what is there in our families, in our histories, that needs to be treasured and brought into our community. What is Jesus calling you to embrace and to share with us? But for others of us, um, we may need to stop. We may need to evaluate and critique in the light of Jesus and the call to follow him um, what's in our past and what we're bringing. What is Jesus challenging you on? What are you bringing that is causing division? Can I just invite all of us here, um, all of us here who call Emmanuel home, to bring our whole selves into our community? It's going to be hard. It's going to be messy. Um, but, but it's in that mess that we're, we're going to get, get, get a glimpse of, of what will be. And if you don't call Emmanuel home, um, what do you consider bringing yourself with all that entails to our community? Regardless of where you're at, the call for us all in the midst of all this is to keep our eyes on Jesus as we walk forward together. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.